I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. This episode is a sermon I preached recently at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Vancouver, Washington. We're putting it up on the podcast because a lot of the content relates to our project, namely the importance of the body. Evangelicalism reduces man to basically a disembodied spirit. All that matters is what happens between your ears and in your heart, and we reject that. We think that's Gnosticism, and we want to uh, emphasize the importance of being a body-spirit composite. So I cover a lot of that in this sermon and end with six points of practical application. We hope it is helpful to you. New Testament reading, which is also the sermon text this morning, is Romans 6, the first 14 verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The word of the Lord. Now we'll invite uh, Reverend Foster to preach the word to us. All right. Is this on now? Yep. Sounds like it. Well, I hear your guys' sermons are 90 minutes. That's long for me. I will keep it to 85. Because 90 is just too oppressive. 85, just right. I'm joking. I got a timer. I'll be good. Uh, so last Saturday, um, my family, not last night, but the Saturday before, we went out to Batavia, Ohio. Batavia, Ohio is just outside of Cincinnati. My wife grew up on the east side of Cincinnati. Cincinnati's got a big loop around it, 275. And uh, as you go outside of 275, it gets country pretty quick. And we are we're getting ready to move to Batavia in the next couple of months, Lord willing. And we went out there to uh, get together with some friends. There was a a concert happening at the Bean and Brew, which is like a 
coffee house parcel bar thing going on. And I go out there a couple times a month to get together with friends. And what they're, they're having all these singers from Claremont County, which is where the county that Batavia is in, come out there and perform. They do, this, they do it in rounds where like, there will be three singers up there, and they'll each do a song, and then they'll step down to do three more. Because uh, Claremont County's had some guys that have kind of made it in Nashville. Like you can find them on Spotify, and they have a few listens, uh, which is a big deal for Claremont County. But uh, so we went out there, and uh, all the music was country music. I am not a country music guy at all. That's not how I grew up. I grew up on rock and rap, and when I had to go to sleep, classical. Um, but uh, I love classical. But uh, what I talk to, I have a lot of snobby classical friends. I always like bring up Hans Zimmer, which if you have friends that are actual composers, that'll drive them nuts. Or Philip Glass. So just if you want to mess with them, there you go. Um, but anyway, as I listened to this country music last Saturday, I found myself transfixed by it. I was really pulled in. The music was visceral and earthy. Uh, it was all about smells and, and feelings and touches and seasons and traditions. Talking, One guy was talking about how uh, he would wake up in the morning to the church bells and just everything as they sung, they, they painted a picture and all parts of life mattered. Like all five senses mattered. And the songs were about individuals, but they were set in a larger story. Like in a particular context, they all were describing Claremont County. They're describing seasons that you like where we, where I grow up, we have like ten tornadoes a summer. That's normal, right? Yeah, I don't think that happens here. Uh, so there's things like particular places, shared experiences that everyone knows, and like as they describe them, they're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, that's how their songs were. Like I just could immediately relate and. As I was listening to all of it, it, uh, it was hitting me hard. It was refreshing. And especially when I contrasted it with contemporary Christian music or contemporary worship music in my mind, uh, CCM or modern worship music, by and large, lacks that sort of earthiness. It's primarily sentimental and ethereal. You know, before I go on a rant against this, let me just tell you, I am not a music snob. I really like, if you're a music snob, I'm not your advocate. You don't, I, I'm not that way. I, pipe organs, bands, I, I, all of it. Acapella, you want to do psalms only? I can get behind it. Uh, as long as, like, it's, it's good lyrics and we're all singing together, I'm for it. But, look, modern worship music's terrible. It focuses on the inner life, by which I mostly mean emotions. It's all about you as an individual and your personal relationship with God. It's all about the feels, Right, you got to add that Z at the end uh, about how you feel towards God and how God feels towards you. And I know this is a frequent critique of contemporary Christian music, and I didn't want to rely on a mere trope or straw man argument. So I took one for the team last night, and I listened to 10, uh, well, two nights ago, 10 of the top 50 worship songs of the last two years. I listened to them start to finish. Um, and I plan to read to you some of the selections to prove my point about how terrible it was. But then I just thought, like, the, the, the greatest commandment, right, is to love God. With, and the second commandment's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I'm just not going to do it. You can go Google. Go Google the top 50 and read them. You'll see how, how terrible it all is. 
Um, the music isn't touchy-feely. It's feely-feely. It's uh, fuzzy-wuzzy, was a god sort of stuff. It's the sappiest teenage heartache music I've heard in a long time, but applied to our relationship with God. Hence, the constant claim that it is Jesus is my boyfriend, or Jesus as my boyfriend music. It certainly sounds like that. Now, I have to admit that uh, it wasn't all bad lyrically. Uh, some of them, actually, the lyrics were all right. But even the songs that were all right were performed in such a way that they're trying to create like a sensational experience. I think this is what old people were always trying to tell me when I was younger, that worship feels like a concert. I didn't really get, well, yeah, there's people up on a stage, they're singing, they're playing instruments. That's like a concert. But that's not what, I, I don't think that's what their critique was. I think uh, what you're talking about, you know, like where you get lost in music? You were like, you know, uh, like when you're singing in the car or something, and then you pull up and you look over and there's like someone looking at you. Um, you ever been to a concert where you or a friend just get caught up in the sound and you lose your inhibitions and you begin to dance even if you can't really dance? Uh, it's a sort of uh, that music. That's what it sounded like. It's about creating an experience that causes you to forget the world all around you. It drives you deeper and deeper uh, inward. And so its end result isn't really much different than the lyrically deep stuff, like the decent stuff. It's, it's inward focus, it's individual uh, focus, and it's all about the subjective. And there's a guy, Henry Van Til, not Cornelius, but Henry Van Til, he was a professor, and he rightly said that culture is religion externalized. So our religion will work its way out into our architecture, our art, our form of government, music, etc. So you can look at the culture of a people and learn a lot about the religion of the people. You can follow it back. And that's what was coming to me last Saturday night as I listened to that country music and contrasted its earthliness in my mind against modern Christian music. I saw our religion through our culture. Modern evangelical Christianity is just like its music. It has come to only emphasize the inner life or what I suppose they would claim are spiritual realities. So the physical life, the life of the body, and all that it does and all that it produces is downplayed or just ignored. It's the spiritual that matters. You know, the stuff that happens inside you. That's what's really important. Now, in the low or non-reformed church, this takes the form of emotive worship services and feel-good preaching that really are just second-rate TED Talks. Now, I know you all have seen churches like that, and I know a lot of Reformed preachers like to rail against them, but how about we always start with ourselves? Because I'll tell you, in the Reformed church, this often takes the form of abstract theological preaching that never, ever, ever gets to the application. They're both kind of disembodied out there. Matter of fact, if a pastor starts to really emphasize the application of doctrine, the importance of good works, he will undoubtedly be accused of preaching legalism. Pastor, we're saved by faith, not by works, and so forth. This is how it goes. Well, actually, I know that there are good RUF teaching elders out there. There, there has to be, at least by number alone. Um, uh, so RUF, the Reform University Fellowship, it's a college outreach of the, of the PCA. But every time, and I mean every time, I've heard a RUF pastor preach or give a report at Presbytery, uh, they have claimed that the biggest struggles, I always wait for it, like, I used to take bets, like, how long it would take uh, to bring up. The, the biggest struggles of their students, what, what's their biggest struggle with their students? Anyone want to guess? How well do you know RUF? Let's find out. 
Anyone venture into the sermon recording? Yeah? All right. All right. Well, it's legalism, right? It's perfectionism. That's what they always say that their students are struggling with in college. They just don't live up to a standard. So they preach hard against legalism. But do you remember college? Because I do. I remember college in high school. And the sins that I saw that were most evident was laziness, sexual immorality of all sorts, drinking, partying. They were very bodily sins. And not just with the pagans, with the Christians. Right? Christians do those things from time to time. These are common sins of youth that Paul tells Timothy to warn him about, right? 2 Timothy 2.22, flee all youthful lusts. So those are common sins, and to me it seems that antinomianism is a clear problem of the day. That means to be against the law. So antinomianism means you have a very low view of God's law, uh, and you just always are kind of digging at it. And yet in the light of all this lawlessness, legalism is their big concern. So what is going on here? And I'll circle back around to the issue of being blind to lawlessness in in a moment. But here's what I think is going on big picture. I think American Christianity is increasingly Gnostic. You always got to get a couple $10 words in your sermon to justify going to seminary. Gnostic, right? Maybe 950. You should know that one. Gnosticism is a false religion that ravaged the church in the second and third century and pops up every so often. They basically believe that the physical realm, as in matter, stuff, uh, was created by and ruled by a lesser evil god that they called the Demiurge. Uh, now, they identified the Demiurge as the god of Abraham, our god. Uh, and they saw him ultimately as evil. So material, the physical world, uh, being the creation of an evil deity is bad. So in Gnosticism, people are divine souls trapped in a physical world. Therefore, um, the body is seen as a prison for the individual and the creator realm as a prison for all of existence, for all of humanity, the race. So salvation means escaping the limitations of the physical realm through special knowledge and being a pure spirit. And I know that no one, at least not in the PCA or NAPARC in our Reformed Church, I know no one's claiming that the Trinity is the Demiurge. But all the other major tenets of Gnosticism are becoming commonplace in American Christianity. Namely, having a disregard for the body and physical things, culture included. Right? Culture war, culture, the cultural war. Are you guys engaged in cultural war? Well, yeah, if they're going to make me like, well, uh, well, wait a second. I'm not going to say the things I don't want them to make me do. I would if it was my church, but I, I leave here in a couple weeks, and I'm not going to cause the elders trouble. But yeah, I am involved I am very much involved in a cultural war. We all are. Right? We see it on the news every day. Um, and these guys will like say, if you're involved in culture of war, that's somehow bad. So the body is diminished. The physical world's diminished. The uh, fruit of that, the externalization of religion, culture, is diminished. So they make everything about spiritual knowledge and spiritual experience. Now, it's easy to refute this from the plain reading of Genesis 1 and 2. Creation is good. God says it over and over again. Matter is good. Plants are good. Animals are good. Bodies are good, right? It's good to be a woman. It's good to be a man. It's good to be what God made you. 
Mankind is created as a body-spirit composite, and he will be that forever and ever and ever. If you're a woman now, you'll be a woman 10 billion years from now. And if you're a man, you'll be a man 10 billion years. That's the doctrine of the resurrection. Jesus Christ shows that the body endures forever. Jesus was a man just like us. If he has a different human nature, then we're going into old school heresy, right? He had a nature like ours, except not fallen. So we, we can show that the idea that matter is evil is insane. The Bible declares the exact opposite. But I want to come at it from Romans 6, because I think Gnosticism is sneaking into the church, the Reformed Church in particular, partially through our, our Puritan heritage. I love the Puritans. I named some of my kids after them. Um, the Puritans have get, given a lot of attention to the heart. And so they often talk about heart religion, Ryle though a very late Puritan, surmised the emphasis very well. He said, The heart is the main thing in true religion. It, hinge, it is the hinge and turning point in the condition of a man's soul. If the heart is alive to God and quickened by the Spirit, the man is a living Christian. If the heart is dead and has not the Spirit, the man is dead before God. Amen. Hallelujah. That is basically what Psalm 51 says. God desires truth in the inward place. God wants a contrite heart. David's like, make me alive, wash me, make me clean. So yeah, we need that emphasis. The heart matters. But it can get twisted to make the heart, that inner subjective spiritual experience, the end all be all. And scripture never ever does that. Actually, if you go back to Psalm 51, like when his heart is changed, what does he do? Well, his lips declares and he'll take time to teach people leads to action right away. So in Scripture, the inner life is always connected to the outer life. Faith to works, the new birth, the newness of life, the gospel to the law, and heart religion to body religion. So let's take a brisk walk through Romans 6 and see this. So verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now Paul, having just given a long explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith in the previous three chapters, he anticipates a common objection to this cardinal doctrine. This is proof that Paul's a Jew. Paul's like Jews in their mind. They're always thinking about arguing. I know I was raised by one. They're always like, I know what you're going to say. They're always a couple steps ahead of you. I know what they're going to say. If people's status with God is by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus and not earned in any way by their own personal works, then won't the lack of pressure free and even encourage the believers to live all the more in sin? Matter of fact, Paul, if God's graciousness in saving sinners magnifies his glory, shouldn't we sin more that grace may increase and uh, in God's glory with it? I mean, people love to mock God's truth with these sort of absurd objections and hypotheticals. If you ever go street preaching or get involved in apologetics, like you always just hear the craziest comebacks. Well, what about marijuana? What about marijuana? Like, what is this? How do you think we're just talking? What about aliens? Why are we going to aliens? Like, you know, what God can God make a burrito so hot even he can't eat it? Like, uh, he can send you to hell. That's a lot hotter than that burrito, I bet. Um, they always come up with stuff like this. Why? Because we love to come up with ways to preserve our pride and excuse our sins. Whether you be a Pharisee 
or you'd be uh, a, you know, a tax collector, whatever side you fall on. We love to come up with excuses, but Paul does not pity the fool. He declares, may it never be. The idea that sin would not only continue, but increase in the life of the believer due to the grace of God is offensive to the apostle. So he says, never. You see, the exact opposite of what the gospel does in the life of the redeemed. It's absurd nonsense. That's why Paul goes on to explain, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with them in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with them in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is one of those passages. Strengthens you, right? It's wonderful. Calvin sums up Paul's argument in these verses by saying, If we are dead to sin, freed from it as our master, how absurd it is to suppose that we can live any longer in its service. The idea that grace encourages lawlessness is, again, insanity. And in verse 5, it talks about our union with Christ. Very important doctrine. Our union with Christ changes our relationship with sin forever. We have now a new nature that results in a radical break with the power and love of sin. We also are free from sin's dominion. It no longer rules over us. And we have new appetites, desires, and a willingness to engage in war with our sinful desires. Being alive to God in Jesus Christ means we will walk in newness of life. That being said, sin is not obliterated. There's what is called remaining corruption or indwelling sin or surviving sin. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our church's uh, standards, points out in chapter 6, this corruption of nature during this life does remain in those that are regenerated or those that are born again. Uh, And although it be through Christ pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sent. So there is a sort of remaining sin, even though we've been, we're new, we've been made new, there's this sediment, this remaining, uh, this surviving sin. Then it goes on to say, in chapter 13, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may prevail, think of those times in your life where some of that old stuff, like, was stronger than, like, for a moment. Because Christianity is like this, you know, you know the difference between EV and AV, expected value and actual value with stocks, right? Like there's with the value of the stock today, which could be here or there. But over 20 years, it should be here, right? 
So like we have, we're gaining in holiness over time, but we have mountains and valleys as we move up. And there are times where sin does uh, prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the regenerating work of Christ is a wrecking ball that demolishes the structure of sin, but some of the ruins of that structure still remain and trip us up. But in the midst of those ruins, a new structure of holiness is being erected by us through the power of the Holy Spirit, God working in us. Now, union with Christ is an inward spiritual reality that cannot be immediately seen with the eyes, right? When someone's saved, when someone's regenerate, right? Like a little E for elect doesn't just appear on their head or something like that. You don't right away see it. There's some of us that one day, like I was an atheist, uh, Friday morning and a Christian Friday evening. Uh, But by God's design, the best way is to grow up as a covenant child. And when you individuate and you just, I don't know, you don't really know. Like, it doesn't happen. Like, it's not always this, like, incredible feeling. But you're saved. God works in you. He unites you with Christ, makes you new. And it's a beautiful thing. It's wonderful. But you can't always see it. Not at first, at least. Because uh, in, in time, it does begin to show itself. Paul continues his argument in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And do you see it? Do you hear it? Paul connects the inward spiritual reality, the fact that we are dead in sin and alive in Christ, to our outer physical reality, what we do with our body. Slaves do what their masters tell them to do. Once upon a time, sin was your master, and we served it with our body. Inside us were evil desires, and we used our members to accomplish those desires, right? Little kids, right? You, you desire the cookie and in your heart when it's not time, and you take it with your hand, right? There's a coalition going on here, inner, outer. That's what's going on. Slaves, uh, or excuse me, we lusted with our eyes. We lied with our tongues. We stole with our hands. This body was an instrument of unrighteousness and lawlessness. But we have been freed from sin. Christ is our Lord. He's our master. So Paul says, so present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The benefits of our union with Christ is like a seed planted in us that grows and expands outside of us through the work accomplished by our body. So it starts in us, but it grows outside of us. That's the religion being externalized. Our tongues preach truth and sing praises. And when we taste food that we like, it's to the glory of God. You know, every time a pagan drinks coffee, and doesn't thank God for him, he incurs a little more of God's wrath. You understand that? Like, God has given us these wonderful things, and we're to enjoy them to his glory. So any act that's not of faith, even drinking coffee, that doesn't, like, you know, come from thankfulness. I got to tell you, I drank a lot of coffee this morning. 
and it was really good. I praised God the whole way through four cups. So um, then we ran out of cream, and I was like, I don't know. I'm ready to go black right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> but thank you. I th- thank God for Patty. So, um, but she's not here, so I don't know. Um, but uh, our eyes, our eyes study the creation and learn to love its beauty, and our hands emulate it in our art and our architecture and even in our coding. Right when you code, bring an order to things. It's amazing. DNA, messenger RNA always blows my mind. Right, the DNA can have something wrong, and messenger RNA like comes down and says, well, "Let me fix that." Like, and evolutionists are like, "Oh, that's random." Like, what are you talking about? Um, I'm you're I'm the unreasonable one, uh, and we labor with our backs, so we have enough to provide for ourselves, our family, and to give to others. So what? once was a tool of evil, is now an instrument of righteousness. Think how anti-Gnostic that is. Not only is the body good, but when under the control of the Holy Spirit, it produces and brings more good into the world. So heart religion invariably leads to body religion. And the Puritans got this. They were responding to, we can, we can so focus on the externals, uh, that it can become dead form. So my uh, second Alaska, Cyprian Ryle is his name. So Cyprian, uh, 250 AD, uh, did a lot of stuff on ecclesiology, which is a favorite subject of mine. And so I wanted to name a kid Cyprian. So I, God gave me another boy. I was like, he's going to be Cyprian. Now, the thing is with Cyprian of Carthage is he's kind of like proto-papist at times. We're like, oh, you're going a little too far in some of this. So to check that, I named, gave his middle name Ryle because <laughs> Ryle hates dead forms, formalism, right? I mean, there's churches that on paper are good churches, but Ichabod, right? The glory has departed. There's no spirit there. There's no life. It's not vital. And so you see these people, uh, like Emily and I go for lots of walks where we live, um, and there's a beautiful Catholic cathedral, and I love it. I look at it so, like, the time they put into it. Um, now, it's, it's no uh, square with square dancing barn, but mind you, um, it's, it's fantastic. And I look at how beautiful it is, and then I, I get sad, though, and I just think, like, man, I mean, in a way, this is, this is just a testament to the idolatry of men, too. And so we can get into empty forms. Uh, and that's, that's terrible. We don't want that. See, the Puritans, they focused on the necessity of good works, and they were makers of a holy culture. So they, they were about forms. They just kept the substance. Um, but somehow a good doctrine got reduced and tris- twisted into this monstrosity that claims that all that matters is the in- inner world. If your pastor can't talk about works... If your pastor can't talk about sexuality, if your pastor can't talk about polity, if your pastor can't talk about politics at some level, right, well, then you're the problem, not him. I'm not here. I don't care if you guys pay me or not. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just telling you the truth. Like, uh, this, I'm not, I don't, no one's told me what to say. I just tell you, if you, if he can't stand up here and bring the truth to you on those things, then you're the problem because scripture does it constantly. How in the world does the Bible not speak to those things? And this is what happens in churches. These men will come up and like, if it wasn't justification by faith again, right? If it wasn't another sola, people get mad. Now, I don't, 
I get the sense that that's not Westminster, but um, which I'm thankful for. But we need to care about the outer world because this idea that all that matters is the inner world, its effect on American Christianity and American society in general have just been terrible. And it brings me back to the issue of lawlessness uh, and why so many Christians are blind to it. Uh, this, I wasn't going to do this text, but I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, so just going on to uh, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. So there's heart religion to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members, body religion, as slaves in purity into lawlessness, resulting in further, further lawlessness, so now present your members, your body, as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. I'm becoming more like Jesus as an individual. Now, Gnosticism has a low view of the body, and it produces antinomianism. It's the other $10 word, which is the low view of the law. Why? Well, because, looking at verse 19, when you present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, you need a way to deal with shame. So when you step on a nail, what does your body tell you? Don't do that, right? Ah, pain shoots through your body. When you commit a sin, you feel guilt or shame. Right? So if you feel it's bad to feel guilt or shame for doing something good, right? That's a bad type of guilt or shame. But it's good to feel shame for doing something wrong because it's like spiritual pain telling you don't do that. And so you have to find a way to deal with that shame. The best way is to repent and accept God's forgiveness, right? Walk in newness of life. But what usually happens is they end up denying the goodness of the body or the law. And they eventually find a way to do both. And so the Gnosticism of our day, of our churches, our refusal to deal with the outer life, is why we see lawlessness as a central feature of our culture. And this is a religion being externalized everywhere across America right now. It just took a while. Right? Things take a while to catch up, and it's caught up to us in a way that I just don't even know what's going to happen each day. Right? Like, they're like, saying there's aliens or UFOs or something. I was like, Kanye's running for president. Like, who knows? Murder hornets? This is 2020. But what I do know for sure is that our emphasis on only the spiritual and not talking about the importance of holiness and sanctification and the making of holy culture has caught up to us as a country and as churches. All our denominations are in trouble right now. Right? They're all struggling. And we've got a lot of problems that we have to deal with. Our chickens are coming home to roost. Because as man goes, so goes a household. And as a household goes, so goes the church. And as the church goes, so goes society. As individuals have uh, given themselves over to lawlessness, it works their way out into their whole family. Spurgeon said, uh, well, so here's what we have to do. We have to... Hang on to heart religion, but do so while reclaiming body religion. We must love the physical and the created realm, and we must become more earthy. There's a difference between earthiness and worldliness. 
world, the world in Scripture, when it's talking about the sinful, the passing nature of the world, it's talking about that system of sin, that evil culture where sin reigns and the devil reigns. It's not talking about like this. It's not talking about rocks and mountains necessarily. It's talking about evil uh, culture, more or less. And so uh, that's why Spurgeon says grace does not make us unearthly. It makes us unworldly. So as grace works in us, it actually makes us more earthy. That's the crazy thing. We, we learn to love physical things because our God loves physical things. He's a creator. He made all these things. That's why scripture is always talking about stars and seasons and physical stuff. Uh, it's why resurrection is at the heart of our gospel. Now, I'm convinced uh, our lack of emphasizing this is why a lot of young people are turning to Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and pagans like Jordan Peterson, because those guys talk about the physical world, and they talk about the importance of culture and, and the body and things like that. So um, they're, they're, they're going to it. They, they see people that appreciate traditions and bodily disciplines and, and the things that matter to them. So uh, you can't preach a sermon like this and talk about how important an application is and not try to bring it home. So, um, so I want to finish with six ways Westminster uh, can become a more earthy church. And these can be applied as individuals or as uh, a community. I know it's mean to put like six things at the end of the sermon, but they're real short. You know, you know I, I listened to a sermon a couple weeks ago and the guy finished five times. I, I almost died. Like, well, just a, in closing, like, dude, don't. Don't play with me, okay? My kids are wiggling in my lap. I feel like everyone's watching me. I know they're not, but I feel like it. Don't say that again, all right? This is getting emotional. (laughs) So, all right, one, emphasize a doctrine of the household, not merely the family, a doctrine of the household. Your home shouldn't just be a place to eat, stream, and sleep. It should be a place of productivity. This takes the form of family discipleship, Side hustles and businesses, there's a lot of that going out here. That's really cool. I love that. Um, but also of hospitality. So the home, homes have changed in our, our country. Well, you can look at the architecture where our dining rooms have gotten smaller and smaller and turned to just little bars in the kitchen. So they're building houses for what people want, which people aren't having folks over anymore. Uh, so your architecture matters. Build, uh, build a doctrine of household. And it so happens, one of the best guys writing on it is going to be here next Sunday, Chris Wiley. Uh, I'm sure he'll talk about it, and you should buy his two books. They're very accessible. He's very ironic and helpful. He's been a blessing to me. So you want to know more, Chris Wiley, next Sunday, be here or be square. Um, second, emphasize the doctrine of vocation. Your job isn't drudgery. I look forward to Monday. I can't wait. I love it. I, I love the thrill of the hunt. Right, David? It's fun. It's fun. Um, and so it's, a, it's your ministry. Your job is your ministry. And it's an opportunity to bring good to others and glory to God. So I think that's what you guys want to emphasize, the importance of what you do all week long. Emphasize a doctrine of place. So I've noticed that Gnosticism gets applied to acting like like, the, the particular place you are doesn't matter. But you go to um, Acts chapter 17, and it says that God determined where to put you. 
He puts you right now, right here. And I, I'm always, when people say, hey, what decade would you like to live in? You know, I'm fine with playing around a little bit, but it does give me ticks, you know. Because, um, like, you would die in the Old West. Like, no, you wouldn't, right? Like, when, you, when there wasn't a restroom, when we went to that park, like, you almost, like, freaked out, you know? Like, what are you talking about? Geneva, like, Calvin might kill you. Um, I don't know. Like, you might get burned. Uh, but um, people always say, oh, no, this is, God has put you here. Right now, I feel like I have to emphasize this over and over. This is a great time to be a Christian. This is where you want to be. Praise the Lord that as the barbarians are circling uh, our culture, we get to be the ones to speak out for the truth of the gospel. Right? It's a great time. So emphasize your place. God is determined to put you when and where you are in history. Trust his wisdom and love. Uh, love where he's put you. Ask, how can I honor God in this particular place? That means battleground. What does it mean to be salt and light in battleground? Not everywhere is like battleground. Actually, battleground is really strange. Like, I don't understand your zoning laws at all. It's like, what is this zone? Is this residential or commercial, or how does this even work? Like, it's just a lot of really weird stuff. Like, some of it's really old, and I'm like, is this white trash or upscale? I can't, like, what's going on? Um, But I don't have to figure that out. But Westminster does. Be a blessing to battleground, right? I am very invested in Batavia and the people there that don't agree with me politically and spiritually. We do. This, it's our shared community, and there's a growing appreciation for one another that I know will open the door uh, to minister the gospel to them. Fourth, urge Christians to co-op existing programs in third places. Uh, so a third place, right? First place is home. Second place is work. And third place is the next place where you spend the most time. They used to, there used to be lots of these. But <clears throat> like the laptop and the iPod and all that ruined it. Like you used to go to a coffee shop, you'd meet people, and people would talk. Now a coffee shop is a library with expensive coffee, right? Um, where people go to work and everyone has their headphones on. You don't talk. Uh, but I, uh, some friends, like I can, I can think about 10 friends I met at a coffee shop back in 99 when I was in college. Um, because people would talk there. We'd play games together or whatever. So find your third places where you can get involved. And uh, if you don't start a church softball league if you really have to. Just join a softball league, right? Just go out there and interact with the people. Show them what it means to be a Christian. Let, let your light shine. Get involved. Obviously, there's some things you can't join, but there's a bunch you can. So look for ways to get involved. Um, and if there, if there isn't something and there's a need to create something new, uh, create it. Be salt and light. Fifth, urge Christians to start companies in the local community. Now, I mean, you guys are doing good here. But excel more, right? Keep doing it. Because we got Proverbs, right? We actually understand how business works. I know soon business is going to be like white supremacy or something. I think like it's going to be the way I'm watching critical race theory and all this stuff go on. But um, start, start companies in your local community. They're, they're incredible at culture making. Uh, politicians listen to business owners. Uh, you have a lot of influence. And you, when you run them according to biblical principles, God blesses it. You, they bring jobs, and they directly shape the culture of those whom uh, they employ. Right, I, I, my former church, one of the elders, runs this um, a scissor sharpening business. It's super weird, right, that someone does that. It's, it's a pretty big business. And uh, they, they supply the scissors for, like, Tyson Chicken. 
So you got to cut the chicken up for your chicken nuggets or whatever, however it works. Um, we heard about your chicken operation. It's very gross. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so he, uh, he loves his employees. He sees it as a ministry. He like would, he, people that are ex-cons, they would bring him in and give him a shot. And some of them, God did incredible things in their life. But he just loved them. What an opportunity to help someone, right? For that person to bring money home and take care of their, their family and to be somewhere where they're safe and appreciated. I mean, that, that's awesome. Guys, more of that. Right? More of places like Maddox. That's, you guys are doing good there, but excel more. What business is lacking in your community? Start one. Lastly, urge Christians to take full advantage of their citizenship. Paul took advantage of his Roman citizenship. So should Christians. Vote according to his scripture-shaped conscience. Run for office and rule in a godly way. Show up to council meetings. Become a mayor. Make use of your freedom for the good of the church and those in your community. Do it. These are six ways that that renewed heart can work its way out practically in this world. These are six ways that that body religion, as an individual, can become a body religion of an entire church. And that we can express, we can externalize our religion into a holy culture right here in Battleground. And there's a, not a lot of churches I'm super excited about, but this is a church I'm excited about. I mean, you guys might, you guys got some different guy up here every couple of weeks. And, uh, and there's some, some, you guys have had some pastoral changes over the last several years. And that might make you feel um, like a redheaded stepchild, like Tacoma feels when compared to Seattle. <laughs> but, um, but you're not. You're not. The Lord is here. The Lord is working in your midst. There is good fruit, right? Don't be discouraged. The Spirit is working here. Our earthly marriages will come to an end at death, but they prep us for the eternal marriage that will never end between Christ and his church. Uh, this current corrupted created realm will come to an end, but God's going to use it to prep us for the life in the new heavens and new earth, which will never end, right? Physicality, this is part of our destiny, right? Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you that you don't leave us as shells, but you redeem us and you, you renew us and regenerate us. And now we are new creations. And out of that new creativeness, you produce much fruit. Matter of fact, it is your will that we would produce fruit and that it would remain. So God, we ask that you would strengthen us to live out holy life, to use our hands and our brains and our, our lips and our tongues and our voices and our bodies to build up your kingdom for your glory. Thank you for your mercy Thank you that it's not by works that we're saved, but because of the work you do in us, you produce so many good works that you've laid up for us beforehand. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.